another installment of our Old Testament survey class. Let's pray and commit this time to God and ask for his help as we study together. Lord, thank you again for your word and for the privilege that we have it in our hands, that we can open it. Lord, saints, other periods of history would have given anything or to hold this book in their hands, to open it and to see in it the self-revealing God of the word. And so we, we don't want to overlook and become familiar with the privilege that we have. And so we, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, our minds, help us to benefit from this study of your work and your activity in the history of your dealings with your people. Help us to benefit, to be sobered by the reality of the deceitfulness of sin uh, so that, Lord, those lessons become a means by which your spirit holds on to us and maintains us in faithfulness to the very end, that we would persevere to the end for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you can open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 2, I'm going to begin by just reading one verse. That is uh, something of an assessment of what things were like at the transitional moment between David's kingship and Solomon's. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. This study brings us to uh, the close of the golden age of Israel as the kingship transfers from David to Solomon and there is peace and prosperity. But as we're going to see in this unfolding study, the peace and prosperity that were hallmarks of the Davidic reign and of Solomon's reign begin to fade at the end of Solomon's reign and eventually Solomon commits idolatry, and the entire nation is plunged into spiritual apostasy. There is civil war, the division of the kingdoms of the north and the south, the kingdom of Israel and of Judah, leading eventually to the exile of God's people being ejected from the promised land. So there, th this is a sobering uh, study for us this morning. Some of you may know that before I came on staff here, I worked at a shipyard for two years which was great preparation for the kind of roughhousing I was going to experience at the hands of the pastoral staff. Um, but I, I worked in the engineering building at Northrop Grumman Avondale Shipyard, and, and there was a guy in my cubicle named Ray. And Ray was, uh, he was a consummate cynic. He was a very funny man. He was proudly Italian, you know, pound-your-chest Italian. And, uh, and he could... Uh, he could create stand-up comedy-worthy monologues just out of thin air and that would leave everybody around him holding their sides and laughing themselves to tears. And, and sometimes he was self-deprecating. Most of the time he was deprecating other people and uh, mostly for their ignorance and not being able to pull off what they were asked to do for the engineering models and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there was one occasion when he turned on his own Italian kinsmen, his own tribe, and he conjures up this one-liner, and he says, how do you give an Italian man a small business? 
and I had no idea where this was going. And he said, give him a big business and wait. (laughs) Now, without in any way endorsing that for my Italian brothers and sisters in here, uh, I remembered that line as I read through 1 Kings this week because there's a real sense in which as we read the Bible, we can ask the question, how do you give a king a fallen kingdom? You give him an established one and wait. How do you give mankind a wrecked and broken, fallen world? You give him a good one and wait. And usually you don't have to wait very long. And that's what happens. That's really the story of this period of history. The pattern of fair beginnings and foul endings is a familiar chorus throughout First and Second Kings, and we're going to sing it again this morning. We sang a familiar song when we transitioned from the glories of the conquest period to the agonies of the judges period and the idolatry of God's people, and this is a similar setback, uh, although with more permanent effects on the people of God. Um, but first, before we get into some of that material... Uh, I think we would be remiss to not point to the ways in which Solomon's kingdom foreshadows Christ. Uh, Solomon was the wisest of kings. Solomon, in many ways, walked after his father David. He was largely, in many ways, especially early in his life, a chip off the old block in in the best sense of the word. He was like David. We're going to see some of that together. But remember, let's back up and remember the big story of the whole Bible. Remember? God is bringing his people into his place to live under his rule and under his blessing. We saw that from Genesis forward. At the very beginning, God creates the world and God's people, namely Adam and Eve at that point, are in his place under his rule and blessing. No curses, none of that, just an enjoyment of fellowship with God, walking in the cool of the garden. All is well. And then the fall takes place. And, and really, from that moment forward, there is no time in all of Israel's history, the rest of the Old Testament, where the people are closer to the Garden of Eden before the fall than when Solomon mounts the throne in Israel. This is the height of the Golden Age. Solomon feared the Lord. He ruled in wisdom. He wrote many of the Proverbs. Right? He, he's contributed large amount to the volume of God's word in the Old Testament. He walked in the ways of his father, David. We might say in a sense, though, not to press this too far, that the kingdom of David foreshadows Christ's, uh, Christ's rule as the kingly warrior. Remember last week there was all of this, David threw them down, sorry. He threw down his opponents and the enemies of God's people. So when we look at David's rulership and we cast that out into the future, into Christ's reign, we see Christ with his foot on the face of the serpent. And that looks like something we've seen before, namely the kingship and, and kingdom of David. Whereas Solomon's kingdom more foreshadows Christ as the prince of peace. Solomon's name even comes from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And, and Solomon's reign was marked by peace, unrivaled, unparalleled, unprecedented peace on every side they were at peace with their enemies and so Solomon's reign points beyond itself to Christ's kingdom wherein Christ having conquered and subdued his enemies ushers in a kingdom of glory 
and of peace. And really, the images in the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation are images of tremendous prosperity, aren't they? I mean, unbelievable opulence and extravagance and beauty and peace. Well, the lamb lays down with the lion. There's absolute peace. And, and back in the days of Solomon, there was tremendous prosperity, unprecedented prosperity. It, one, one passage here says that silver was common. It was as nothing, the text says. It was like paper. There was so much silver in the kingdom. Gold was common. You couldn't quite pave the streets with the stuff yet, but you see where I'm going with that. It, it's not too far to draw a trajectory line from the shining city of Solomon to the jaw-dropping glories of the new Jerusalem that is to come. And, and so so Solomon foreshadows some of this. And even though this period is going to get really ugly very quickly here, don't forget that as it was with David, everything that we know about Solomon isn't fallen, idolatrous, and problematic. He was a, he was a great king of Israel. And, and he led God's people through a, a tremendously wonderful era. Although, at the end of the day, his idolatry got the best of him. And, and it led to to the downfall of the kingdom. So Solomon and the rise and fall of Israel. Early in the narrative in 1 Kings, we come to various descriptions of the state of the kingdom. We began with one of them, verse 12 of chapter 2. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And then some selections from chapter 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. That harks back to the promise made to Abraham a thousand years prior. Remember, he said, look up to the stars. Consider the sand. Can you count the sand by the seashore? Well, this has been fulfilled in part in the days of Solomon. Israel and Judah were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And this was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham as well, remember? Part of it was sons and daughters, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And the other was, you will have land, Canaan land. That is fulfilled here, he says. So you can see this way in which the author of Kings is pointing back and saying those promises have been fulfilled. He had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. This is a beautiful little image right here. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. So you have your own space. You have your own stuff. You have, you have a, a swing underneath the porch, right? My wife has always talked about one day having a house with a wraparound porch. This would be that day for Israel. Everybody had their tree in the front yard and their wraparound porch. It was the wonderful days of God's people. They weren't subjugated. Their house didn't belong to someone else. It was their space, their land. They were prosperous and blessed by God. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breath of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And Solomon then we're going to find uh, Solomon picks up right where David, his father, left off. Do you remember where that was? David said he wanted to build a house for God. But he wasn't allowed to because he was a man of war and he had shed too much blood. But God said to David, I'm going to let your son build a house for my name. I, David, I'm going to build a house for you, namely Solomon, 
and those who would come after, namely a king who would sit on David's throne forever. I'm going to build you a house. But Solomon, God would allow Solomon to build a house, and that didn't keep David from storing away vast sums of money and treasure so that when Solomon came to the throne, he wouldn't have to wait. He said, I want Solomon, who has been apparently given the ability to build this house, I want him to be able to start building on day one of his installment into the kingship. And so, 1 Kings 5.1, Solomon doesn't wait. I love this. Right at the beginning of his kingship, we have the heading, Preparations for Building the Temple. Sounds just like David. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he had heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. Now, so Solomon is installed as king, and the very next words are, I want to build God's house, the one that my dad wanted to build for God, a house that would say something about the glory and the name of God. And so he picks up the phone, and he calls the king of Tyre, my man named Hiram. And you might say, why is he talking to this foreign king named Hiram? Well, because the most beautiful cedar and timber in Cyprus in the world at the time was in King Hiram's kingdom. And frankly, no other cedar in Cyprus will do. This has got to be perfect. And the greatest woodcutters in the world were Sidonians. And no other woodcutters will do. I want them all. I want your best men. I want your best cedar. You name your price. You just bring the bill. I don't even have to know what it is. Just come, bring the cedar, bring the workmen, and let's build this house. It's got to be perfect. That's why. This is not just him talking about something he wants to do. This is a business transaction in chapter 5. He intends to build it, and he will build it. And seven years later, the temple is complete. And it was absolutely splendid. And in chapter 8, the ark comes into the temple. And the people worship. And Solomon preaches. And he preaches on the Davidic covenant. He reminds them God's promises to David. And, and, and then he turns and intercedes for himself and for the people. In chapter 8, this beautiful prayer of dedication of the temple and, and a prayer of intercession Israel and he prays at the end of that around verse 58 and 60 he prays that God would incline their hearts to him to walk in all his ways so that this is the purpose of this whole moment Solomon has a thoroughly at this point God-centered vision of the nation of Israel and he says I'm praying all these things verse 60 that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. There hasn't been a better moment in Israel's history than this moment. God's people are in his place, under his rule and blessing. We have the wisest of kings. We have a kingdom of peace. The throne of Yahweh is in Jerusalem. Israel is, at this point, quite literally a city set on a hill, surrounded by valleys. It is a city set on a hill. For, Psalm 48 described it in this way. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, Israel. And this is the psalm that begins, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city 
of our God in the mountain of his holiness. That's this moment. It's looking at this moment where the house of God has been built on the hill in Jerusalem. We've come a long way from life in Egypt, haven't we? Where they weren't a nation. We have moved a long way down the road. Matter of fact, the text even tells us how far down the road we've moved from Egypt in chapter 6, verse 1. It gives us that reference point. shows you this little speck in the rearview mirror named Egypt. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, etc., etc. So Egypt is a long way behind God's people experientially. It's a different time. They had had no homeland there. They had trouble at every turn. And Egypt is behind us. Or is it? Because there are, there are moments where we find Egypt, even the name, the designation Egypt, looming in unsettling ways early in the narrative of First Kings. There's even a note of warning right after Solomon leads the people in worship in chapter 9. <clears throat> can turn there. Chapter 9, verse 4, God speaks to Solomon and says, and as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house, the one you just dedicated, the glorious one before which you stand, this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, this will be the answer, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and they laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. And actually, cracks have already begun to form. Earlier in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, this is the famous chapter in which God tells Solomon, ask what you will, and I will give it. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. He doesn't ask for riches or fame or might. He asks for wisdom, and God loves this request and gives him wisdom. And not only that, but he says, because you've asked for this, I'll give you the riches and the fame as well. Well, in that chapter already, because it's so famous for that particular portion of the story, I think we can skip over a critical little detail in the first verse of chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt. Now, it had already been clarified earlier in Israel's history, in the patriarchal period under Moses, 
Look at Deuteronomy 7. This is in your outline. You shall not intermarry with them when you go into the land, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. This bodes ill for Israel's future. Why, we might ask, is Israel strictly forbidden from intermarriage? The answer is because the quickest way, one of the quickest ways to compromise the future faithfulness of God's people, the people of Israel, is for a worshiper of Yahweh to marry, for an Israelite man to marry an Egyptian woman. Why? Because the house is divided in its worship. Sure, dad worships Yahweh, but mom worships Molech. And what often happened was this led to syncretism, the blending of both faiths, and which faith loses. <laughs> right? So dad and mom both begin to worship Yahweh and Molech, which Molech doesn't mind because he doesn't exist. But Yahweh does mind very much because his first time going on record, the very first words, we said this in the first study, the very first inscripturated words are not Genesis 1. They're in Exodus 20 when God writes on a tablet of stone. And what does he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and Molech didn't help me. God wants sole exclusive glory and he deserves sole and exclusive glory. Glory, so it is a problem when his people don't give him soul and exclusive glory. How do you give a king a fallen kingdom? You give him an established one and wait. Prone to wander, <laughs> Solomon felt it. Turn to chapter 11 and you'll see it. Verse 1. It's interesting, the Hebrew word ahab is the word for love. And it describes both Solomon's love for God, his Ahab for God, and his Ahab for pagan women. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved, there's the word, many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. You know, sometimes people will talk about their types. You know, I'm a brunette type or a blonde type or I'm a, I like athletic types of people. If we ask Solomon, what's your type? He might well say, you know, my type? I'm attracted to pagan women. I'm, I'm attracted to ungodly women who don't worship Yahweh. That's all these ites are ungodly pagan women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these, the forbidden women, in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. So Sol Solomon begins to accumulate wives, and this is that period of history which has led to the most perplexing theological question my kids have ever asked me. What is a concubine? Right? Oh, for the days when they thought Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. Uh, it was a lot easier 
I, I don't know where he put all the porcupines, buddy. I have no idea. <laughs> um, but before we think of application points in broader realms, I think we should hit the one that's most obvious. Single Christians should date and then marry Christians. Because one of the best ways to have your love for Christ turned away from Christ is to fall in love with someone who doesn't follow Christ. But more broadly, no matter what our station in life, where we are, is this principle that God is not okay with disobedience. He has saved a people that we might be holy, that we might make a proclamation to a pagan world that God saves, that God changes lives, that God can make a people in an unholy world holy and His and devoted and loyal and faithful to our great God. And that principle runs all the way through and it's an undercurrent underneath everything that we're reading here. The message of the Old Testament is not different from the message of the New. So a thousand years after Solomon's reign, there's a man named John writing. And he writes these words, which would have applied to Solomon's day as well. Do not love the world or the things of the world or the people, the women of the world. This is, this is the echo, this is the warning. And history brings perspective because if we travel back from Solomon 500 years prior, we find Moses on Mount Nebo. Remember this moment? He's on Mount Nebo at the very end of his life. He's going to be dead by the end of today. He's looking from Mount Nebo into the promised land that Israel's about to go in and take it this time. And in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks to a future king in Israel. And he says these words. He begins by addressing the people of Israel at large, and then he speaks more specifically to the king who would sit on Israel's throne in the future. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, like now, <laughs> and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. All right, so this is to the king. That king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. It's supposed to stay in the rearview mirror, literally and metaphorically and spiritually. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. These are haunting words. Now, how is the king 500 years from now supposed to remember that? Well, Moses made it very clear in the very next verse. Here's what the king should do when he mounts the throne. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. That means he should be a Bible-toting king. <laughs> and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Why? For what purpose? That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, 
and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. And the ultimate goal of that would be so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You get the irony here. Moses has just led the people out of Egypt. They're about to go into the promised land. He's speaking to a future king. And when we get to that future king in the book of Kings, he just married an Egyptian woman. You see the downfall. You see where this is going. What began with one Egyptian princess became a discernible pattern whereby Solomon was marrying these foreign women in order, not just because of their beauty, but because of their power. They happened to be related to kings oftentimes or to rulers in other nations. So he was securing his kingdom. He was expanding his kingdom. He was making alliances uh, with these other rulers and leaders. 1 Kings 11, 3, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. What are you doing? The abomination of Moab and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Do you remember what Moses said would happen if the king of Israel became an idolater? He said in Deuteronomy 7, the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you if you do this. Look at the next verse. Verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon. Wow. The Lord is true to his word. In every direction, he is true to his word. This should be sobering for us and it's downhill fast this leads us to the divided kingdom the result of this disobedience is found in verse 11 I will surely God says tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant and he goes on to say but for the sake of your father David and the promise that I made to him I won't tear it from you in your lifetime I'm going to tear it from your son and even then when I tear it I'm going to leave to the tribe of Judah That one tribe, you will continue to have someone sitting on the throne in Judah, but all the other tribes are going to leave. They're going to break off and form their own kingdom in the north. They'll be ruled by someone else, namely a man named Jeroboam. Solomon knew. Okay, so Jeroboam. And Solomon knew something about Jeroboam because Jeroboam served in Solomon's court. He was, if you will, for a period of time, the superintendent of the labor union. And this was forced labor. So when Solomon was doing some of his public works projects, he put Jeroboam over this. This is a very capable man, and Solomon knows it firsthand. And he's not only a capable man, he's a man who knows a lot of people who don't like Solomon because they don't like forced labor. (laughs) And that's Solomon's, ultimately Solomon's fault. Jeroboam was just obeying orders. So Jeroboam knows a lot of people who are discontent with the guy who's sitting on Israel's throne. And Jeroboam actually tries to lift his hand personally against Solomon and ends up failing and fleeing for his life. And he starts to run out toward Egypt. And a prophet named Ahijah grabs him before he heads out of town. And he says, you should stay in touch with us. 
because here's what the Lord's doing. He takes a piece of garment and tears it up into 12 pieces. And he says, the Lord's going to tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon. And he's going to give a big, big chunk of it to you. So when Solomon dies, you should come back, get in touch with us again, because you're going to sit on a throne in the north. So Jeroboam goes off to Egypt. Solomon dies in chapter 11. Rehoboam, his son, steps up to the throne. Jeroboam comes back from Egypt. And Jeroboam, it almost seems, has, is coming offering terms of peace. He comes to Rehoboam, Solomon's son. These are not brothers, by the way. Jeroboam is not related to Solomon. And he comes to Rehoboam, and he says, listen, there are a lot of disgruntled people in Israel still upset about the way that your dad treated them in the forced labor unions. And I think that we can secure the kingdom and maintain the unity of the kingdom if you will be a sympathetic and benevolent king. Would you consider that, King Rehoboam? And Rehoboam does. He considers it and he comes back and he, and he, he basically says, um, you better buckle up because you thought it was bad under my father Solomon. My pinky is thicker than his waist. And so I am going to put it hard to you. I'm going to rule in power. I'm not going to bow under the desires of the people. I'm the king of Israel. And then we find the tragic verse in 12, verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. And that leads us to episodes from the divided kingdom era. Jeroboam is now the king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and Rehoboam is the king in Judah. And look at Rehoboam in chapter 12, verse 25. Uh, Sorry, look at Jeroboam there. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill of the country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord back in the south in Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And we we can't have that, now can we? So the irony is, is thick, again, right here, because it goes on to say, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Two ironies here. One, Israel goes right back to Egypt, don't they? And even though it's been 500 years, idolatry is instinctive in their hearts. It's been 500 years, but she still knows how to make a golden calf. And though they may, and they make these two golden calves, and they say, "This is our God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt." They are quoting verbatim their ancestress, unbelieving generation before them. And secondly, it's interesting and ironic that Jeroboam blocks them from going to Jerusalem, lest their hearts turn back to God. If only Solomon had thought this way and not built these idolatrous worship points. If he had only thought. I should block them from worshiping other gods. We should be a one God, Yahweh-worshiping people. Jeroboam succeeds then in leading the northern tribes into apostasy. His idolatry was not just personal. 
it was institutionalized in Israel. The people were positively urged to worship idols. And then, and Jeroboam really becomes the standard of evil kings for the rest of this book. So that whenever an evil king rises to the throne, it says he walked in the ways of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam led the people into, into full-blown idolatry. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son down in the south, didn't do much better. Look at chapter 14, verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they had committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so the aftermath of this split is civil war, the infighting between Israel and Judah. This is Cain and Abel all over again. And then they're plundered, they're bullied, they're deceived by the nations around them. And then loss of land. The nations that they had conquered uh, began to get their own borders back. You know, now that the kingdom was divided, these, these groups, Ammon and Edom and Moab and the Moabites, all these guys, they all started to say, you know what? I think that Judah is small enough for us to take back our territory. Let's do this. And so they started to reclaim Israel's losing land that had been promised to them. Everything is crumbling. And at this moment, God begins to turn up the volume of his word. He sees his people toppling into idolatry. He turns up the volume of his word. And how does he do that? Through prophets. This is where onslaught of Old Testament prophets start arriving, beginning with Elijah and Elisha, and then followed by the canonical prophets. Canonical prophets just means those are prophets who have their name on a book in the Old Testament. And they start coming at this period in time. So let's go to Elijah and the canonical canonical prophet. It's really criminal that I'm not going to be able to go into Elijah as much as we, we need to because he is a titanic figure in the Old Testament. I, I, just huge. I mean, you think about Jesus is there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got two Old Testament characters with him. One is Abraham. The other isn't David, and it's not Moses. It's Elijah. And then you go to the book of Revelation, and you got Moses and Elijah. This is a, this is a threesome here. Jesus, Moses, Elijah. And you might say, what do those three have in common? Well, they all function as prophets to God's people, declaring the way of salvation. But these prophets are unique among all the prophets in history because if you follow the storyline of these different prophets, clustered around these prophets is not only speech, but incredible, mighty acts of signs and wonders. You don't find signs and wonders breaking out anywhere in the Old Testament like you do in the period of Moses' ministry, the period of Elijah's ministry, and you don't find it again until Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. So these are prophets with, with power-packed signs and wonders confirming their testimony. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the height of Israel's glory, and in 1 Kings 16 is about as low as it gets, at least before the exile. 1 Kings 16 uh, marks the ascendancy of one of the most evil kings in Old Testament history. Uh, this would be King Ahab, whose evil was only maybe surpassed by the real king of Israel, his wife Jezebel. Uh, and, and Ahab and Jezebel were both rank, uh, card-carrying, idolatrous pagans. And um, his worship of Baal and Asherah are such, you can see this in, in chapter 16, 
that the laying of the foundations for the expansion of his kingdom and the expansion of his empire, to do that, he offers both his firstborn and his youngest son in sacrifice to his gods. It's impossible to imagine that this is the king of Israel, that this is the king over God's chosen people. Now, prophets are making noise through this whole period, not only Elijah and Elisha, but these other pre-exilic prophets, these are the prophets before the exile, so Hosea, and you can see some references, if you go there, you'll see in Hosea 1.1, it references some of the kings that are serving during the period of the divided kingdom, Amos, Isaiah, Jonah, Micah, possibly Joel and Obadiah, looks doubtful, but possibly those two were prophesying at the same time. Second Chronicles 36, this pretty much gives a, an assessment, an evaluation of how the people were responding to to God turning up the volume of his word. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. How was God having compassion on his people? The fact that there was a man named Hosea coming to them was God's compassion. The fact that after Hosea, there was a man named Amos. These aren't necessarily chronological order, but there was Isaiah, there was Jonah. God was screaming, maybe you'll listen to the next one, so I'll send Micah. What about Jonah? How about Isaiah? And God is turning up the volume of his word, and he's having compassion on them, and look at their response, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, when there was no remedy, God had sent the prophets. What did God do? Who did he whistle for next? Not a prophet. He whistled for the Chaldeans. The oncoming of the nation that would subjugate his people. Now, there were a few good moments, a few moments of brief reform in the kingdoms of Israel and of Judah. Uh, but by and large, the movement is steadily downward, both in the north and in the south. The, the period of the divided kingdom, taking place roughly between somewhere in the middle of the 900s, so 950 or so, to 722, when the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrian invasion. And in the north, there were 19, 19 kings over this course of about 200 years. 19, he just shows you the instability of the nation. Whereas before, Solomon reigned 40 years. David reigned 40 years, right? Uh, sorry, yeah, Solomon and David. They reigned 40 years, and now you have 200 years. You have nine kings from, 19 kings from nine different families, nine different dynasties. Now, in the south, 19 kings, 350 years, almost two times as long, one family, the family of Judah, the family of David, continued to rule in the south. And Judah is the last man standing when the northern kingdom goes down under Assyria, and Judah falls in 586 B.C. when Babylon comes in and lays waste to everything, and the te temple is a heap of smoke and ruins, and the lament went throughout all of Judah. The booth of David has fallen unthinkable moment in Old Testament history. The booth of David is toppled over, smoking ashes. For the first time in nearly 500 years, the throne of King David was vacant. And as we saw back in Genesis, the people of God are ejected from the promised land. They're sent out of the land. 
But there's a prophet named Amos, and he writes something fascinating about what's to come. And Amos is actually prophesying during this period. You see him in the pre-exilic prophets. And he says this toward the end of his book. It grabs your attention. He says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Here come the vineyards again and the wraparound porches. They're going to see the blessing of God again somewhere in the distant future, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord your God. This is grace. Because God doesn't say this after they've repented. He says this through Amos in the period of the divided kingdom before the booth falls. The booth is going to fall because you're not listening to Amos and all the rest of them. But the booth will not stay fallen. I'm going to raise up a king in the future who will pick up the booth of David, who will remount the throne that belonged to David and my people will live back in my place under my blessing forever. So we see that there are good things to come but for now this is a dark, dark period in Israel's history only gets darker next week. So if that's a sales pitch for next week, I don't know. But thanks for coming.